I've been looking forward to, well, to this fall, I've been looking forward to all summer long, because as I've shared with some of you, we're about to embark on a season of prophecy, and uh, that excites me. You might say, well, Rick, I thought we were in the prophet Ezekiel, and we've just finished Jeremiah and Isaiah before that, and we've been in prophecy. We, we have. Um, but we're at the point now in Ezekiel where all prophecy is yet to come. And where he will be talking about, and the Lord will be revealing to us that which is on the horizon, that which is before us. So that excites me. The message I'm going to bring this morning um, excites me as well, and I've been processing this and praying over it all summer long. So uh, we may be here a while. (laughs) Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people, and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land, and the people of the land take one man from among them, and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet, and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet, and does not take warning, and a sword come and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand." Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn away to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Lord, we open the Scriptures before you this morning, and we come now asking for your Holy Spirit to give us insight and revelation, to speak to us truth in these last days, to give us understanding that is based both in spirit and in truth. For we truly do not have one without the other. And we pray, Spirit of Truth, come now, teach us, and Lord, motivate us for the season ahead. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Cheryl came home the other day with a couple of new clocks for Hayden and Anna Marie for the new school year. Atomic alarm clocks. Which I read that and I said... What, you can only use these once? (laughs) They're atomic because they set themselves, some of you are familiar with this, from a radio signal that broadcasts continually from Fort Collins, Colorado, throughout the contiguous United States at 60 kilohertz. This broadcast is sent out. And so there are clocks. We have actually a big one on our wall that just sets itself automatically based on that broadcast coming out of Colorado. And all you have to do is plug it in and give it some time, usually about 12 hours, and it finds that broadcast signal, and, and it'll spin a few times and then finally set itself. And so we did that. Cheryl plugged in both of these atomic alarm clocks, set them on the counter, and it worked. They set themselves perfectly. 
if we lived on the East Coast. (laughs) Three hours ahead. And so Cheryl put the directions on my desk and said, you figure it out. And I read the directions, and I saw that if I just reset the clock to Pacific Standard Time, it would be fine. And, And they're working just great. It's September 1st today. And I think it's a good time for us to reset our clocks. Or more specifically, to reset our watches. Jesus said in Mark 13.32, Of the day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. A lot of Christians hear that and they just set aside all eschatology, all study of the end times, all thoughts about the coming of Jesus other than the fact that He is generically going to come at some point because we don't know the day or the hour. But Jesus also said in Matthew 16, verse 2, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? So clearly, discernment is called for. Clearly, eyes wide open are necessary. We don't know the day or the hour, but we should and can know the seasons and signs of the times. Like the men of Issachar, 1 Chronicles 12.32, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Or Acts 17.11, like the Bereans, who received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, we live in an age where prophecy and the uh, proliferation of the disseminated prophecies on the website are huge. All you have to do is type in Syria and prophecy and you will get 50 or 60 different ideas and thoughts about what's happening in Damascus, in the Middle East, with our country, our culture, what's going on. And the questions come up several times to me in the last week or so. Could Isaiah 17 be a prophecy of what's going to happen in Damascus. Not a a prophecy of what has happened, but a prophecy of what will happen or what is taking place in Damascus. Isaiah 17, we're not going to go there this morning. You may have expected us to, we're not going to. But Isaiah 17 verse 1 talks about the fall of Damascus, the wiping out of Damascus. And I looked at that, and, and I'm going to give you an opinion on it, but you may have a different opinion and that and that's fine. Here's Rick's opinion. The historical fulfillment of the fall of Damascus referred to in Isaiah 17 is decisive. And I believe when Isaiah prophesied the fall of Damascus, he was talking about an event that we can look back to in history, not necessarily one we're going to look forward to prophetically. Why would you say that? The thing about, and we've talked a lot about a double-edged sword of prophecy. Some Bible prophecy is given and there's an immediate fulfillment and then there's a further fulfillment. As Wednesday night, we talked about Egypt and the destruction of Egypt. And there were seven different oracles about the fall of Egypt. And some of those were very rooted in history. And then all of a sudden you get to about the middle of these oracles and God starts talking about the day of the Lord. Well, there's only one day of the Lord and that is something to come. That's eschatology. So suddenly we're saying, okay, there's a fall of Egypt that happened during a 40-year span when Babylon crushed Egypt. But there's also a fall of Egypt yet to come that is future tense in the day of the Lord. 
So one is history, one is prophecy, and I know it can be confusing sometimes with Syria, with Damascus. And Isaiah 17, if you look at the context in Isaiah 17, I said we wouldn't talk about it, I'm going to just real quickly. (laughs) In Isaiah 17, what you see happening is not only do you see Damascus falling, but coupled with that is the fall of Samaria. Samaria, which no longer is even in Jewish hands today. Samaria is the West Bank, quote-unquote, today. Judea and Samaria, the Jews talk about, they do not have sovereign authority over. It is in Palestinian hands. But the prophecy says Damascus and Samaria will fall. Damascus fell, leveled by Assyria, in 732 B.C., Babylon would come along and level it again 127 years later in 605 B.C. But Samaria fell within a decade of the fall of Damascus. Samaria fell just as it's prophesied in Isaiah 17. So I look at that and without other indicators I say that looks like Isaiah was prophesying something that happened past tense. It's historical. We need to understand cities are plowed over and rebuilt. Nations rise and fall. That's the stuff of history. And we need to be those who search the scriptures, taking care to understand whether prophecies are historical or eschatological. And again, eschatology, eschatological, end times. Which one are they? I'll give you another example. We are not looking for Jesus to come to Bethlehem. Okay, That was an historical prophecy fulfilled by the coming of Jesus to Bethlehem. We're looking for Jesus to come to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 tells us. That's eschatological, that's prophetical, that is yet to come. So as you search the scriptures, you need to look for those indicators. Is this something that happened and was fulfilled historically, or is this something that has never happened, therefore will be fulfilled eschatologically? You see the difference there. But here's the bottom line. Anytime we talk about prophecy, and Christians, you know, we can, we can fall prey to this. We get excited about prophecy and world events. I was glued to President Obama's statement yesterday around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. He came out and he said, here's the deal with Syria. And then he waffled and that was the end of that. <laughs> but I'm watching because as a student of prophecy, I'm like, okay, what's going to happen here? What's going on? Eyes to the world stage, paying attention. And we can get excited about these things happening. Take care that in our excitement, we don't forget that our great concern is not with the nations. It is with the king of nations. That our focus is not on what's happening in the world as much as what is Jesus about to do? That our eyes are on Jesus because Revelation 19.10 tells us, and I remind you again, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I love what Don shared at communion. It's eyes on the Son, and the rest will take care of itself. Eyes fixed on Jesus, thinking about Jesus. Do you know the second coming of Jesus Christ is referred to 1,845 times in the Bible? His second coming. His glorious return is the dominant theme of 17 books in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's referred to 318 times in the New Testament Bible. And with the last book of the New Testament, you know, being entirely devoted to it, the book of Revelation. And many other sections as well. So what we need to do as followers of Jesus is synchronize our lives with the coming of Jesus. Synchronize our watch with His timetable because we're not looking for the fall of Samaria or Damascus. We are looking for the return of the King. Amen? Amen. 
With that in mind, as I've been sharing this fall, we are heading into a season of prophecy. And that excites me. Because we will get a lot of information, a lot of indication about what is to come. We come into the end times prophecies of Ezekiel that we know are eschatological because they have not happened yet. And when God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So these are things that are about to come right on the horizon after Ezekiel, Lord willing, we will head into the book of Daniel. Perhaps my favorite Hebrew book. An amazing book that is said to be the key in the Old Testament of unlocking the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And that's true. If, if you don't have some kind of a grasp of the book of Daniel, it's really hard to get a grasp of the book of Revelation. The two go hand in hand. I, I didn't realize this. About 12 years ago, when I was putting off prophecy study, I had a group of people coming for a Bible study. We were meeting in Anacortes uh, every Sunday night. And they kept saying, we want to hear about the book of Revelation. And I kept saying, I don't want to teach it. <laughs> Please. And so I put them off, and we, we tried, I'll do First and Second Thessalonians, and we started to do that, and I started to realize, okay, there's something there. And then I said, oh, let's, let's, I just thought, let's do Daniel. And I had no idea what I was getting into, but I thought, that'll put off Revelation. Well, what I realized, and what God was doing, is we had to do Daniel, because once we got to the end of Daniel, it was Revelation time. Are you saying we're going to do Revelation right after Daniel this time? Eh, probably not, but we did then. <laughs> Who knows? That's up to the Lord. But we need to synchronize our watches to Jesus and His timetable. And maybe you're getting this, but I'm not talking about timepieces on our wrists. And I'm not talking about atomic clocks on our nightstands. I'm not talking about devices in our lives. I'm talking about how we keep watch. To synchronize our watches, our keeping watch for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I believe is happening in Ezekiel 33. I think God is synchronizing the prophet's watch. He is clarifying his calling. He is renewing his vision. Look again at verse 7. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. That's what a watchman does. Is He stands on the wall and he watches for what's coming and he warns the people, right? Verse 8, when I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. The call of the watchman. Bring the warning. The call of the watchman is not to change the man's heart, but is to warn the man honestly and openly of the truth of what is coming. And we have the watchman's call. Not to sit around and wallow and feel bad because I shared the message of the gospel with someone and they did not listen. No, you did what you were called to do. You share the message. You keep watch. And you keep on keeping watch. And you keep calling out warnings for what is to come. A watchman, the Hebrew word for watchman is sapa, And sapa means a lookout. Or one who intently watches. Looking into the darkness to be absolutely clear of what is coming, looking into the light of the Scriptures, that we might be prepared to warn a world that is fast spinning out of control. Now, as we read Ezekiel 33, it might sound a little familiar to you. If if you recall, it's kind of a repeat. It's the same exact word the Lord gave to Ezekiel back in Ezekiel chapter 3. 
Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, you can go back and read it, parallels this calling. It's the watchman's call. And the Lord gives the same warning in Ezekiel chapter 3 that He now gives in Ezekiel chapter 33. Why is the call of the watchman repeated here? And I'll give you two possibilities. One is vindication. Some think it's because when you get down to about verse 21-22 in chapter 33, you discover that word from Jerusalem finally reaches the exiles that Jerusalem has in fact fallen. That the temple has in fact burned to the ground. And so at this point in the book of Ezekiel, some think that the watchman's call is reinserted here, perhaps by the prophet himself, or perhaps the Lord says, I want you to put this in one more time, as vindication that everything Ezekiel said was going to come to pass has now come to pass. Absolute proof that this prophet was and is a watchman of the Lord, did hear clearly everything God was saying. For now the exiles can look across the the countries, back to Judea, back to fallen Jerusalem, and say, Ezekiel was absolutely right. Vindication. Isaiah said in Isaiah 54, 17, No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. God always vindicates the message of His servants. I look back over the years of teaching the Bible and some things that I've said that may have at times seemed outlandish. I may throw a few out this morning. And I know that I know that I know that if I am teaching the Word of God, though the message may be wild, though it may be bizarre, though it may seem beyond comprehension, if I'm teaching the Word of God, I will be vindicated by the Word of God because His Word will come true. Vindication. But you know what's interesting? The word vindication. Isaiah 54 says, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their vindication is from me. The word vindication is sedekah, And it is from the root word for righteousness. Their righteousness is from me. You're proven right by me. Your life is made right by me. In other words, your value, my value, does not come from success as the world measures it. Success that you've done it all exactly right or you've built up some kind of a legacy. Our value comes from the fact that God's righteousness is in us truly by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been made righteous. I have already been vindicated by the cross. And as a watchman of Jesus Christ, I stand vindicated before you, before the world. The Bible tells us in Philippians 1.9, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Listen to this. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God, the fruit of righteousness... You see, the Lord is the vindicator of both the seen and the unseen fruit. The things we do that bring out immediate results and the things we do or say as watchmen, watchwomen that nobody sees, we don't even see. I talked to a dear sister on Wednesday night who said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in retirement now and I, I don't feel like I've ever really done anything for the Lord. No fruit, I haven't seen it. I said, well, you're following Jesus right now, aren't you? And she said, well, yeah. And I said, there's fruit. I said, did you raise your kids 
to believe in Jesus? Well, yes, I did. There's fruit. Well, yeah, but they're not in ministry. Do they believe? Yeah, there's fruit. Have you told people about Jesus? Yeah, but no one's ever come to church with me. I've never, I've never gotten anybody saved that I know of. Have you told people about Jesus? Well, yeah, fruit. You see, I, I had a pastor once who measured fruit. He, fruit was a big word for him. Perhaps, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but he was always saying, I need to see fruit in your ministry. I need to see fruit in your ministry. Fruit translated to numbers. Rear ends and seats. That's what he wanted. If your youth ministry is growing, I'll see the fruit of it. I'll see more teenagers there, he would say. And, and I, that bugged me. Because fruit is sometimes seen, sometimes unseen. The fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. And we will be vindicated if we simply live for Jesus. And you may not see the fruit in your life. You may not be, like Ezekiel, able to look back and see all that you have said, all that you've taught, all that you've shared has come to pass. Well, actually, you will at some point. But right now, you may not. It may take some time. It doesn't mean you leave the wall. It doesn't mean that you cease to be the watchman, the watchwoman that God's called you to be. You keep watch. And it doesn't matter if you see the fruit. Because the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. There's one other reason, though, I think that Ezekiel's calling is restated here. And it's not only vindication, but it is revelation. Because we come now to a hinge moment in the book of Ezekiel where suddenly all that was prophecy historical now turns to prophecy eschatological. From here to the rest of the book, we see prophecies poured out for Israel's restoration, for Israel's invasion. We'll see prophecies of the coming kingdom. We'll see prophecies of the temple rebuilt. All these things that are future tense and absolutely marvelous to see. And so I think right here, the reason why God has this watchman's call, this watchman's duty reset, is so that Ezekiel is now set for the new ministry. He has new revelation before him. Ezekiel resets, or God resets Ezekiel's watch. That was 2,500 years ago. And the question before us this morning is, how is your watch set? Do you see the signs of the times? Are you aware of what's going on? Do you recognize the very season we are in? For the people of Israel, this is a big month. This is on the Jewish calendar, the month of Tishri. Our September-October time frame falls. Now, they're on a lunar calendar. We're on uh, Gregorian... So, different calendars. They have, we have 365 days a year, they have 360. So, it, it gets off a little bit. Tishri for them is September, October, depending on the year. It's, it's right in there. This year, Tishri is right now. And in the month of Tishri, which is occurring right now, uh, first, let me be the first to wish you Shana Tov. Can, can you say that? Shana Tov. Very good. You just said Happy New Year. Shana Tov, it's the Hebrew for Happy New Year, it's what the Jewish people are going to be saying this Thursday, September the 5th. Because this Thursday, September 5th, the Jews celebrate the head of the year, or Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, it actually begins sunset on Wednesday night, September 4th, and runs through, because the Jewish day, remember, begins at sunset and runs to the next sunset. So it's September 5th, technically, but uh, more technically speaking, Sunset, September 4th, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah will kick off what's called the Ten Awesome Days, the Yamim Noraim. 
And that culminates on September 14th with Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which actually begins sunset on the 13th, but then runs through the 14th. After that, still in the month of September, or the month of Tishri, comes the most joyful of all the Jewish festivals. The one the Jews enjoy the most, have the most fun with, it is the most celebratory of any of them, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. That's going to take place beginning sunset September 18th, running through September 25th, a seven-day festival. Uh, Sukkot, I, someday I've got to go experience Sukkot. Don, have you and Emily, were you there during Sukkot? You were. So you saw it. Uh, it's apparently amazing. I've seen pictures, but what takes place in Israel and especially in Jerusalem, a, a sukkah is a little tabernacle. Sukkot is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's celebrated to remember how God provided for the Jewish people in their wilderness wandering across the 40 years. And so these days, what they do is they build little sukkahs all over the place. They're little lean-tos, three-sided usually with a roof, and some families will build this up, and during the whole week, those seven days, they'll have festive meals within the sukkah. Other families will camp out in the sukkah for the entire time during that entire festival. They're put up everywhere. Jerusalem is filled with them. Even on high-rise apartment balconies, you will see sukkahs set up. Little twinkle lights and everything. It's, it's an amazing and an exciting time. All three of these festivals take place this month, the month of Tishri. All three of these festivals are important, I believe, for synchronizing our watches to the coming of Jesus Christ. But we've got to go back. I need to give you a backdrop for what I really want to share this morning. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Early in the history of Israel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The nice thing about the first five books of the Bible is they are so easy to find. (laughs) Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1. I'm going to quickly walk through the chapter, but I need to do this so that you will understand what I'm going to share at the conclusion. Chapter 1, Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying... Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. The Sabbath. That's the first convocation. And that is the weekly convocation. God sets that appointed time and says, once a week I want you to take a break. And you Bible students know that was rare in those days. For a a culture to take a day and seven for resting. And we're used to the weekend, although now we fill the weekend with so many things we don't really rest. But God said, I want you to stop. Unfortunately, the Jews made it somewhat of a legalistic thing. The Lord just said, I just want you to take the day off and be with me. We can go fishing, you know, we can go for a walk, we can watch a football game, that's cool. Just be with me. Spend the day with me. Shabbat, Sabbath. But in verse 4, he steps into now or goes on with the seven appointed times of the Lord, annual appointed times that God gave through Moses to the people of Israel, still celebrated today. And the first one is Pesach or Passover. 
Verse 4 says, These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Now, explanation. You might say, wait, if the Passover is in the first month of the year, why do the Jews say Shana Tov in the fall? Why do they say Happy New Year if Passover is on the first month of the year? You need to understand that the Jewish calendar is looked at two ways. The month of Nisan, when Passover falls, is the first month on the religious calendar. That's the first month where God says, from here you start to count out now my appointed times. Beginning in the spring, beginning with Nisan, on the religious calendar, that's month one. So typically when the Lord is talking about in the twelfth month, or in the tenth month, or in the ninth month, He's starting with Nisan. But the civic calendar for the Jewish people, the civic calendar begins with Tishri, this month. Which is why they say Shana Tov, because it's Happy New Year. It's the beginning of the new year for the people of Israel, civically speaking. So that understood, Pesach, Passover, happens in the spring. It happens there in the month of Nisan, as the Lord said, on the 14th day at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Immediately following that comes Chag Hamatzot, which is literally the feast of the matzah. Matzot is matzah, matzah bread. It's the feast of unleavened bread. Passover happens on the 14th. Chag Hamatzot happens on the 15th and runs for seven days. Okay, look at this. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is a feast of unleavened bread. To the Lord, for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. So Passover, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, immediately continues on that week. And then during that week, during that same week, is Reshith Katsir, or First Fruits. First fruits. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, he, the priest shall wave it. Okay? So first fruits follows. Passover. Unleavened bread, first fruits, all happening immediately there. Passover first, kicking off unleavened bread, and during that week, first fruits will happen as well. And verses 12 through 14 describe various offerings for that, that recognition or that appointed time of first fruits. And then the count begins. The count begins up to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Skip down to verse 15. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So seven Sabbaths, seven weeks, seven times seven, 49. I can still do multiplication. Thank you, Jesus. But then the day after that is day 50. And you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. The Feast of Weeks is then celebrated. And he goes on to describe that. Someone's online. I Mark? 
<laughs> He's tracking everything I'm saying. <laughs> We're going to see if Rick's on on this one. <laughs> Here's what I want you to understand. These were all appointed times. And that is significant. Appointed times is a single word in the Hebrew, moad. Moad means a designated time, or we might put it this way, an appointment. God says, I am giving you these feasts, Israel, seven feasts that are going to run throughout the year, but these are my appointments. These times were appointed by God to be fulfilled by God. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying Jesus never misses an appointment. When God makes an appointment, He shows up. Jesus was crucified on Passover, the 14th of Nisan, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Passover, check, fulfilled. Jesus showed up. Jesus took my sin to the grave. He removed my sin like leaven removed from the bread. The feast of unleavened bread beginning on the 15th of Nisan. Where was Jesus? In the grave. Having taken my sin with Him, Unleavened bread. Check. Fulfilled. Jesus resurrected from the dead on the 17th of Nisan. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits, the third festival, check. Fulfilled. Jesus shows up in His resurrection. And the count began, and exactly 50 days later, on Pentecost, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, Jesus began and empowered the church with His Holy Spirit right on God's schedule. My appointed times. My appointments. And Jesus never misses an appointment. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Feast of weeks. Check. Fulfilled. All of those happening in the spring. Like the prophecies of His Bethlehem birth, those four feasts were literally, historically fulfilled by Jesus in His first coming. Now, if Jesus so precisely kept the first four appointments, will He not keep the last three? Is He just going to ignore those and say, yeah, well, those are just for fun? Or is it possible, I put to you, Bible students, that Jesus will show up for all three of the fall appointments as well. Look at verse 23. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel. In the seventh month, this is now from Nisan being the first month, now you come around to the seventh month, which is Tishri. In the seventh month, On the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord, Rosh Hashanah. But Rosh Hashanah is not the biblical name for the holiday. The biblical name for the holiday is Zikaron Teruah. Why don't they celebrate Zikaron Teruah? Why why don't they celebrate that now? It's a memorial of shouting. 
That's what it means. A memorial of shouting or a memorial of blowing. It's not Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. It is the Feast of Trumpets. And that is this first feast coming September 5th, this week, Thursday. Traditionally, the shofar, which is the ram's horn, is blown 100 times that day as a reminder to the Jewish people historically of God's creation and of His covenant faithfulness. And up to this point, we can say, and please say it with me, shofar, show good. Right, okay. A day of shouting. A day of trumpets. A day of glorious celebration. The Feast of Trumpets. Does that not remind you of something else? 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.51 Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Kind of like our nursery. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, who are alive is the indication, will be changed. Oddly enough, the whole idea of the rapture of the church freaks out a lot of people. And not a few Christians who, who, who find the subject unnerving, if not downright scary. And we've talked about the rapture of the church. And, and my kids, I, I've had this conversation even this weekend with a couple of my kids. And I said, does, does the rapture scare you? Little. <laughs> And I was talking with a dear sister Wednesday night about this. It just kind of freaks me out. And maybe you're in that camp. You think about the whole idea of, of the rapture of the church, that we're suddenly caught up, we're gone. We're out of here in the twinkling of an eye. We meet Jesus in the clouds. Oh, I mean, it, you know, people get freaked out. And the questions start to come. And the worries and the frets. And, and, and I mean, I love Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. I'm just not sure I want to go that fast. Could he give me, like, you know, an RSVP? He already has. And if you've responded, then you just need to be ready to go. But listen, the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, comfort one another with these words. You're not going to read anything associated with the rapture of the church, the catching up, where the Bible says, therefore, be freaked. (laughs) Hope this makes you anxious. It's going to be a thrill ride, you know? 1 Thessalonians 5.9 God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep alive or dead we'll live together with Him. Is that not what we want? And we say yes but in our natural man we say or natural woman we say yes not yet Jesus. Not yet. I'm not sure. That. Now, some of you are going, are you kidding me? I'm ready to go yesterday. <laughs> but there are many who, who say, I, yeah, but well, haven't. My daughter's engaged to be married on June 7th of next year. I just want to get married, Dad. I get it, honey. Do you want to see Jesus? Don't you want to see Jesus? 
Wednesday night after Bible study, and I love it. I love when this happens. Hour and a half in the judgments and the oracles of Egypt. You know, heavy study. And a young man came to Jesus and gave his life to the Lord. Which is just what happens, you know? James. And he was on the edge of his seat. It was marvelous. He'll be back, I think, second hour today. Um, in fact, he may be baptized today as well. So James is sitting there afterwards. He's talking with some guys, and I sat down with him, and, and I'm, I'm listening a little bit, and we're sharing Jesus with him, and his eyes are wide open, and he's excited, and he's smiling, and he's going like this. And then Dave Goodman says this. He goes, James, do you want to be with God? And James' eyes got real big. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because what I heard was, you want to see God? We'll take you there right now. <laughs> Literally said, I said, James, we're not talking about, you know, we're not going to, we're, we're not a cult. And they're not getting out, you know, like the fruit punch or anything. It's cool. Just relax. It's all good. My friends, it is all good. The rapture of the church is all good. There is nothing bad about it, nothing to be afraid of with it. It is all, these are words, a shout and a blowing, words of joy, not a whimper or a cry. It's joy. It's a good thing. And people say, what about my children? What about my little ones? 